When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Ethan Warren. And this is The Great Hunting Caper. Jim Henson's final TV series grew out of an urge to hedge his bets. If the storyteller failed to catch on, which, after a disastrously rated premiere in 1987, looked more likely than not, he would need a backup project to jump to. Brainstorming, Jim came up with a variety of ideas, most of which seemed to orbit around the notion of getting stuck inside a television. In TV, one of these shows was to be called, Inner Tube, another. They failed to take hold. Finally, Jim landed on a pitch he could run with, his version of The Wonderful World of Disney, the anthology series hosted by Walt Disney in its prime and recently revived with Michael Eisner. Rather than a grab bag of programming, though, Jim conceived of the Jim Henson Hour as operating on a strict rotating schedule. The first week of every month, the show would feature an episode of The Storyteller, The following week would be a sort of MTV-era evolution of The Muppet Show entitled Lead Free TV. The next week would be devoted to a so-called picture book special along the lines of Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. And finally, the month would be rounded out with The New Wave, episodes with vaguely defined unlimited potential. Jim still believed in TV, in its power and its cultural responsibility. He had enjoyed working in movies, but TV was his first home and it was where he wanted to remain. We should be creating a kind of basis for TV which will be good for us and for kids. There's too much negative thinking in the world. Why don't we try dealing with the happier side instead? Jim shot a pitch reel for the Jim Henson Hour in which he strolled the Muppet workshop encountering the old familiar Muppet gang, which required a reunion of the old Muppet performer gang, Dave Goals with Gonzo and Frank Oz with Miss Piggy, rubbing elbows with Jim once more. There was a pleasant air of nostalgia to the proceedings, and NBC agreed to back the show for a half-season, set to begin airing a year later in 1989. The only problem was the network wanted Jim to change the show's format. Rather than a rotating schedule of hour-long presentations, they needed every episode to be made up of three segments, two lasting 15 minutes each, and the third running half an hour. I was very excited when the Jim Henson Hour came on TV, because the Jim Henson Hour, to me, seemed like... Um, it seemed like a compromise in the best sense that like I knew that like Jim Henson was sort of moving forward and that like he's he was looking at like look what I can do with the green screen and look what I can do with like this kind of effect and he was still sort of like trying to figure out like digital effects and and new things but it was also it had um he seemingly was learning the lesson that's like okay so I'll give you a little bit of the old stuff if you'll indulge me with some of my new stuff that I'm working on. So having the, the actual Muppets back doing the Muppet television segments felt like, okay, this is like, it was almost as if there had been a mediator that had come in between viewers like me and him as a creator to be like, they don't want to just watch you do your new things that you're figuring out. You have to bring Kermit back. You have to bring some of that 
that tone that we associate with you. And, you know, he comes back, and my memory of the Muppet television stuff is that it was as funny as the early stuff. I wonder whether I would feel that way if I watched it now or if I would notice a... Um, uh, that he's is he missing a step at that point? I truly don't know um, because I haven't revisited those in a long time, and they're not. Um, it's not easy to to get them other than like clips here and there. It would be really nice if the, somebody restored them. I feel like that's an era where stuff was shot in a way that the only copies that exist are on very bad VHS recordings with a lot of wavy, you know, sort of bendy audio and, and, and video, you know, and I'll say in that, in that era of TV, they used to, you know, this is a very interesting, uh, um, thing to think about now, given the number of viewing options you have every week in the newspaper, they would print a list of all the TV, sh- all the primetime TV shows. And it was like a list of 120 shows and the order that they were, And I remember because most of the things I watched on TV were in the bottom 10. So I'd be watching something like the Ben Stiller show and it would literally be the lowest rated show on network TV. And yeah, so it doesn't surprise me that the Jim Henson show was also, you know, I probably remember there were probably times when I was looking at the the Associated Press article about here's the ratings for this week's show and seeing like, "Ah, nobody's watching the Jim Henson hour. You know, and you could feel, you know, that also further disincentivizes him doing more stuff like that because he's like, if nobody's going to watch, I might as well do whatever I want. I don't need to pander and do things I don't want to do. Um, but I remember that was a show where he was innovating and being funny. So I liked it. So if you see the original pitch reel for the Jim Henson Hour, um, it'll break your heart because it it is a huge missed opportunity by NBC. One week was gonna be the magic bowling ball. Another week was gonna be the Muppets in Mexico. The next week was gonna be the storyteller. Another week was gonna be a behind the scenes documentary on the making of Sesame Street. It was all these really interesting, coherent ideas that Jim had. And the highlight and the, the pitch reel that Jim has, he's excited about it. Um, it's, it's, it's beautifully explained. And the network said, you know what? That's great. Do all of that in one hour. And it was just, it's, it's a recipe for a disaster because there's no coherence to the show once you do that. Um, so the Jim Henson Hour is one of these shows that doesn't know what it wants to be. And it's not necessarily Jim's fault. He's trying to give the network what they've asked for. Um, but, you know, when you're when you're used to, <laughs> when you're somebody who has a lot of big ideas, Taking those big ideas and presenting about a quarter of them, um, you know, all jammed up against each other is, is just destined for frustration. Jim had a good relationship with the network, um, but the network wasn't sure what to do with it either. They weren't sure how long they were going to give it. Um, this wasn't 1975, where The Muppet Show was going to be given a season of 26 episodes to find its way. Uh, it had to kind of find its way in a hurry. And it never really does. Um, you know, it's. It, it it's it even to this day it's it's a curiosity, but it's tough to watch. People people who knew and loved Jim, Jerry, Joel, everybody they they knew um, how frustrated Jim was with the show. And again, partly it's because he was trying to give the network what they wanted rather than give them what he wanted to give them. Um, it, it's like 
it, it, it's heartbreaking. And, and again, if you watch, if you watch that pitch reel, that's the show you really wanted to see. It's it's just devastating that he never got to make that make the Jim Henson art the way he envisioned it. These parameters made brainstorming episodes a tricky proposition. The writing staff needed to essentially create three episodes every week, with only the vaguest of concepts behind any of them. As Jim pointed out, Variety is not easy to do, and no one is doing it successfully right now, and we may not either. Not the most encouraging words from one of history's great optimists. Meanwhile, the budget swelled, with Jim commissioning an opening sequence that cost half a million dollars. Jim believed in this show, and he was willing to put money into pursuing its full potential. One major advancement came in the character of Waldo C. Graphic, a computer-generated Muppet controlled remotely by Steve Whitmire, who could see the virtual puppet on a monitor in real time, allowing him to interact with physical performers. Waldo was a floating cloud of shapes able to transform into anything with the face and affect of a circus clown. Waldo's about as appealing as he sounds, and like the rest of the new recurring Muppets, he was a puppet in search of a character, and failed to capture the imagination of viewers the way the classic Muppets once had. Those classic Muppets, meanwhile, were left stranded in awkward bits featuring characters not ready for prime time. If one episode of the series has been identified as a high point, it must be Dog City, a parody of classic noir starring a cast of canine Muppets. Inspired by the novelty painting Dogs Playing Poker, the episode wowed viewers with its production value and a moody, smoky atmosphere Jim worked hard to cultivate. He spent 18 days directing the episode, probably twice as long as strictly necessary, but he was having too much fun. He didn't want to stop. Hell yeah, Dog City. Okay, so I did not come to Dog City as a child. Somehow I missed it. But I'm glad because I watched it when we had it on Filmstruck. And I was like, holy crap. This has so many homages to noir. Noir being one of my favorite genres, eras, moods, whatever you want to call noir. Um, mode of cinema. And it's like, there's so many like exact homages there's homages to like things like fallen angel there's homages to um i tracked a bunch of them there's there's homages to like shoot the piano player where wolf the dog is like playing <laughs> the piano i'm like how did he do this um i don't know i think if you love noir and you love things like uh um the what is it dead men don't wear plaid like in terms of great neo-noir satire noir like homage noir whatever you want to call it this should be discussed in the same manner it is it is so well informed with the like 40s 50s noir it is it is like oh not quite even a satire it's literally just like they made a b film where all the characters are dogs instead of humans. But essentially, you could you could take this script and, you know, like cast um, Dana Andrews and Gene Tierney or whoever, and it would play exactly the same because they kind of they mostly play it straight, just with little tidbits of, of Muppet humor, like Rolf showing up. Um, I love this movie so much it's so and it's really beautifully shot like they um they do that evocative sort of like foggy lighting and the high contrast and uh, it's got great costumes on the on the 
dog gangsters and the and the mall dog malls and I don't know. It's a perfect movie as far as I'm concerned. And also it's only like what 65 minutes or something. It's like really short. The movie is anyways. Um yeah, I feel that anyone who who um participates in November should at some point in their life watch Dog City. It is perfect. I remember when we had it on Filmstruck, uh Ryan Johnson tweeted like watch Dog City, you're welcome. <laughs> that was it. I was like, thank you. Um it's it really is like I don't I don't know. I don't actually know the background of like how they developed it. But having seen hundreds of noir, I know that they have also seen hundreds of noir and um and, but it's another one that like it's a it's it's so well done in terms of how it functions as a noir that you can rewatch it like Laura or Fallen Angels from those ones that are are um endlessly rewatchable because the characters are so interesting there it never it never goes too far into parody even though it's dogs <laughs> which i think is why it's it's kind of so fun and then and then you get like you expect from um like you expect from uh, uh, this era of Jim Henson, you get some really fun musical numbers that uh, I think she sings like a torch song, the, the female dog character. And you're like, damn, we should have always had Muppet, Muppet Noirs. There was some debate over who would host the Jim Henson Hour. Jim hoped it would be Kermit, but NBC persuaded him that the entire premise of a wonderful world of Disney pastiche relied on the titular artist appearing at the center. And so, reluctantly, Jim agreed to see a vocal coach and stylist. Though his pitch reel had been set in the comforting space of the Muppet Workshop, for the series itself he introduced episodes from within a surreal computer-generated landscape, the sun setting in the distance behind some impossible Roman architecture. His co-host was a white lion, a massive Muppet lounging on a pedestal. The effect was simultaneously beautiful and off-putting, a major downgrade from the more tactile workshop setting. We'll be right back after this quick break. I actually was re-watching some of the Jim Henson Hour recently in part because of this show and I tweeted about how Jim Henson was hosting the show from inside the concept of Vaporwave. I just love looking back on it now and seeing Henson in his uh, colorful sweater on this CGI set made up of columns that look like they're out of a mist game and there's a big lion puppet <laughs> on, a, on a, a platform next to him. And it is the most 90s thing that you could see. And as I wouldn't say that I'm a 90s kid in the BuzzFeed sense of the word. I straddled the 80s and the 90s. But God knows as a man who's aging and finds the world very sad these days, there's something comforting to go back and look at how specific that was. Um, anyway, that was a lot about something that's probably not that important to it but 
it's such a look. Um, I was super excited about the Jim Henson Hour when it started because I was in love with the Muppets as a kid. I had all this Muppet stuff. I would even check out copies of the Muppet newspaper comic from the library, like collections that they had. And this was the first new Jim Henson television project that was really going to be the Muppets in a long while. And I thought it was amazing. I didn't realize that a lot of it was repackaging it of stuff they had lying around, dribs and drabs that they then could shunt into this format. But that didn't matter because the grab bag nature of it, the oddities, was part of what I found so compelling. And probably why it didn't do that well. <laughs> probably why it didn't survive that long and I had to go looking for it on the TV schedule. But I liked the wild unpredictability of it. And I enjoyed the Muppet TV stuff. Uh, I thought that the digit look was cool. Um, the Rastafarian probably hasn't aged that well, but uh, this may not be something that appeals to TV viewers. I think they generally like consistency and characters they can follow and stuff like that. But as someone who was a kid with a wild creative imagination, I liked how you never really knew what you were going to get with a Jim Henson hour. And sometimes they would be like, okay, here's an hour of Dog City. Uh, an elaborately <laughs> choreographed dog gangster puppet show. Or here's Monster Maker, an adaptation of a book that I read as a kid. And so I was excited to see like, oh, this weird British book is now a Jim Henson special. Um, but I imagine that was confounding to viewers who wanted something that they could understand and know what they were going to get week after week. Jim labored over the pilot for months, tinkering and editing until finally handing it off with disclaimers that he still considered it unfinished. NBC held the episode in limbo, refusing to announce a premiere date, before finally airing the episode in April 1989. In the ultimate affront from Jim's perspective, the show was programmed on Friday nights, a notorious viewership graveyard, when Jim had hoped for the prime Sunday evening spot occupied by the wonderful world of Disney. In his review, Tom Shales sniffed, quote, the new Muppets are ugly, end quote, and labeled the first half of the show, quote, frantic drivel, end quote. Shales' conclusion was devastating. Quote, television certainly needs more good, wholesome entertainment. Wholesome Jim Henson needs to concentrate more on good, end quote. So you you had seen the Jim Henson Hour prior to this? I had not, even. Oh, okay. Not. No, 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 no. I I just acted excited because I, I like those words in concert <laughs> together. Um, not enough people did. <laughs> not nearly enough no, people No, I did. would. Have you talked to anybody who watched it? In real time? Yeah, Dan McCoy of the Flophouse uh, watched hmm. uh, the Jim Henson Hour and was excited to revisit it. Found it compelling. Just the right age. He's a little older than us. Um, okay. So, I mean, I didn't know this show existed until I probably read uh, Brian J. Jones's book. Um, and going back to watch it now, I can only watch a couple. 
Um, it, mm -hmm. I, it, it didn't compel me. Yeah. Um, I find the new Muppets really off-putting. Um, yeah, they are. I, it's the sketches aren't funny to me. Um, it, the chemistry is just wrong, and and what is different than the Muppet Show is what I can't quite figure out. Um, but it's something. It is. It, it is. I think it's stimulating from like a like what is this object kind of level. Like it, it's fun to talk about the Jim Henson Hour in that regard, and probably because it has all of these intersections of like, it's a little more clear what the context of the real world is. Like it's a television studio and show at the same time. It, so so at least that's that's interesting from like a him thinking about what his relationship to those mediums is, but. It's not entertaining to experience. And he was obsessed with this idea of like a show that took place inside the concept of television. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't seem like that exciting. Like he went through so many iterations of this idea of a show that took place inside television. And like Jim, let it go. It's not that good. Um, it's And it's supposed to take the place of the backstage at the Muppet Theater. And it's just so sterile and weird. And Digit makes me feel bad. And Waldo, I want away from me. So yeah, I was, I was free. I was set up to to be terrified of Waldo as a child who sat through Muppet Vision 3D and developed a real phobia of that guy. So I never want to see him. Cool, that that checks out. Um, <laughs> so, which you know, did you watch any uh, episodes of this in particular? Did you jump around a little bit? I, yeah, I started with like the test pilot, which is a, a, a kind of a perfect uh, representation, I think, of its various obtuseness. Um, and then I watched some of the um, what is it, the Secrets of the Muppets episode, like the I like didn't one, get to that one, which seems the most in line with um, the like Walt Disney. Here's how we do it. Here's why we're doing it. Um, and it's certainly, again, it is endearing and it is interesting if you have a preconceived notion of what the Muppets are and you are interested to find out about it. But outside of that, it, it doesn't, it, it feels like a, like an autobiography. Like this is something he's written for himself. Um, but I don't think that's true because I think he really wanted to make a show about like what the inside of a television was and like. Maybe this comes from like being born before a time there was television and like having to, oh, and having all of your successes be owed to it in some way. And like having to like both worship and like distance yourself from it to the point of like, it consumes you. It just reminded me of uh, what Grail Marcus pointed out about the band, which is that the, the band had been making rock and roll at the time they hit, they had been making rock and roll for about half the time rock and roll had existed. Yeah. And same can be said of Jim Henson. By the time he hits television, I mean, he, his lifetime spans uh, a pretty huge chunk of the existence of television to date. And you get like several versions of it, right? You get like the smash hit, you get the like, the first and only promise of what like educational, like, community source, community minded television could be, you get the, you get advertising, you get all of these things. So 
it makes sense that he wants to make this sort of like vaporwave predecessor. The one my daughter and I watched, though, it, it uh, we watched Miss Piggy's Hollywood. And okay. the second half, I mean, it's prime Muppet stuff. Cameos, Fozzie's mm-hmm. telling jokes. The stuff still works. It's mm-hmm. just that the new stuff doesn't. Yeah, I guess my question would be, do you think the Jim Henson Hour would be better without the Muppets? Or, like, like was that a crutch to, like, to lean on? Or was it... Yeah, I mean, when you see... Kermit and Gonzo and Digit, you just want Digit out of there. So maybe it would have had, it probably wouldn't have succeeded, but it might have air quotes succeeded Mm -hmm. uh, better without them. Um, But there's no way Tartikoff would ever let it on the TV that way. Shales had kinder words for the second half of the pilot, which featured an installment of the storyteller, but there was something chilling in the indifference demonstrated towards the Muppet sequences. Kermit material was supposed to be foolproof. Why were the Muppets bombing? What did this mean? The Jim Henson Hour. We watched an episode of the Jim Henson Hour, and this episode's main title was... Miss Piggy's Hollywood. But before we got to the Miss Piggy's Hollywood portion, we saw some other stuff. Do you remember any of the stuff we saw? I remember that... that that they were they were talking a lot about readings and like how the, how the watchers liked it more and less. It's called ratings, which is a measure of how many people are watching the show. So yeah, the big joke of this one was the the Muppets in the control room were very concerned about how the ratings were going. And you noticed that there were some Muppets who were familiar and some that were unfamiliar. Did you like the unfamiliar new Muppets? No. Why not? The, the, uh, well, one of them looked kind of freaky. Are you thinking of Digit? Mm-hmm. Digit is sort of a scientist, a mad scientist who works in the control room, and I agree, Digit looks pretty freaky, just like all the new Muppets, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I like the little baby, though. Yeah, there's one that looks kind of like a Cabbage Patch Kid, uh, played by good old Fran Brill, and we don't know uh, what her name was, but you were a fan. Well, I did like Digit because he liked how he said yes and no. Oh, yeah, there was a little running gag where yes meant no and no meant yes, but only sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's pretty classic Muppet stuff. And then there were little sketches, um, like uh, there was the one with the butterflies shooting each other with cannons and guns. What did you think of that? That did not look like a good review. The, the listener can't see your face, but that was not a happy face. Mm-mm. How about uh, there was a part with kind of sea monsters and like they found a lawyer in their bathtub and trapped it in a jar or something? Mm-mm, mm-mm. Not a fan, not a fan. Okay, so so far, everything I've talked about you didn't really like. Um, did you like the Miss Piggy's Hollywood special? Uh-huh, uh-huh. What did you like about it? I liked that it was silly and, and I liked the pool part where, where she and Gonzo fell into the pool. Who fell in the pool? She and Gonzo. Oh, Miss Piggy and Gonzo. Right, right, right. Um, Yeah, that was when she was visiting with Justine Bateman. We also got visits from Dudley Moore and George Went and Bob Hope, I think, was there. Really, uh, a who's who of 1990s celebrities. I I like the one that loved Miss Piggy. Oh, Dudley Moore. That was the joke at the end was that he was in love with Miss Piggy. Classic. Somebody's always in love with Miss Piggy, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you think you'd watch more of the Jim Henson Hour sometime? Maybe. 
That's only maybe, though. And a lot of times when you've been watching Muppet stuff, you're like, yes, yes, yes. But now we're just saying maybe? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there you have it. Your review from a uh, going into first grader saying that the Jim Henson Hour is only a maybe. That's that's cold. But, you know, that's the reality of it. Anything else to say? Watch, watch, watch it. Why are we still saying watch, watch, watch it if you said you didn't like most of it and it was only a maybe that you'd watch again? Well, I like other people to watch to give their perspective. Very wise. Okay. Things were looking dire at Henson Associates, a fear that was only confirmed when NBC canceled the Jim Henson Hour after just three weeks. At its lowest, the show finished 72nd out of the week's 77 network programs. Jim wrote a letter to his staff. I don't particularly like the way NBC handled us, but what the hey, that's network TV. What the hey indeed. But despite that attitude, it's fair to guess Jim Henson's eternal optimism might finally have been shaken. Something needed to change in Henson world. Something big. And Jim Henson had a big idea as to what that change should be. On the next episode, The Great Henson Caper in 3D. Every morning, every day